The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door on Star Trek The Next Generation. This moment with Harry is that small gesture that doesn't fix everything, but does a lot. So it's a sort of more profound version of someone who's having a rough day and just bringing them a cup of tea. Just that sort of like a gesture that like you are doing something that you may not explicitly talk and confront what they're saying, but just the action of doing it shows a consideration and an action on that person's part. And you love it because it is an expression of love and a desire to help, not just to keep someone alive, but to put their concerns at ease, even if it's just a little bit. And now the conclusion. So, yes, I, the way you just put that a second ago, the people in the family that are most likely to be able to be good with words would mm-hmm. either be Sarah or Truth. And mm-hmm. Sarah is the one that is more likely to be able to use mm-hmm. words in such a way that it would be able to bring Thomas back from one of his difficult moments. Unfortunately, <laughs> Truth, Truth is as good with speaking, but because of their relationship being more antagonistic. I mean, there was that moment As in chapter- Todd's, I don't know if they're necessarily antagonistic. I mean, I don't know. That's me just splitting hairs over a definition while the sentiment nevertheless comes across. So yeah. carry on. I mean, we already talked a little bit about that whole thing. It was in yeah. terms of like, unfortunately, Thomas just manages to push truth's buttons a lot of the time whether as a part of whatever it is that he's doing or even as being a part of his ribbing during the thanksgiving chapter and everything like that but there is that quiet moment between the two of them where she does try to explain her point of view and make peace with her father and i think more frustrating for her and for the audience is that we kind of see that even though Thomas clearly loves truth, that he doesn't completely hear her in that moment Mm -hmm. because it's still, whether he understands it or not, it's still all about him being right, so to speak. Yes. Uh, He he is sort of, yeah, uh, I can't really put it better than that, that he is, he has so much like, drive to accomplish what he's setting out to that truth can't really come first before that and yeah that's an unwinnable and and almost an unsolvable situation i think that thomas genuinely feels that there's no one he would rather be 
in that position than truth in the sense of like if he was to butt heads with someone who is trying to like sort of rein him in within the same government that he is working Mm -hmm. he probably has a lot of pride for like the amount of a game that like his daughter brings but it's irreconcilable differences and again like i say there's so much like fantastical stuff going on in this Mm -hmm. book with uh, the manticore and wendigos and all of that but at its heart is human interaction Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. framework like just the difficulties of people coordinating in various frameworks, whether that's on a grand scale of a whole nation, mm-hmm. on a slightly smaller scale of just a system of government trying to coordinate all of that, or even on the most intimate scale of just a family, that is all it carries its hardships and its heartbreaks and those conflicts that almost feel inevitable. And Obviously, you feel they never get to as ugly or as sort of terrifying as like what Tremaine represents, but mm-hmm. it hurts. It does hurt because it's not something that will break a family apart, or at least it doesn't seem to be doing that yet, but it places strain on it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just something that makes you sad to see. Yeah. There's also an element to all of that that is very in keeping with uh, one of the bigger influences on this story, once again, mm-hmm. the West Wing, because there are so many. Put a penny in the job. <laughs> so many interpersonal conflicts between the main characters of that particular story and the fights that they have and the way that they come together at the end in order to try and bring resolution to whatever new thing is going on that day and there can be some knockdown drag out fights at times or shouting matches as personalities clash and people make arguments towards one or the other and it takes them a while to sort of come down from that it's not blood family in this case it's more found family it's more the mm-hmm. the 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 family that works together kind of conflicts and everything like that but there's there's definitely parts of that show that alex is very likely drawing on to a certain extent when writing parts of this book Mm. before we move on i'd add that i find a certain ironic tragedy in the way the conflict between father and daughter developed it is the course of events of new century that helps thomas and indeed his entire family rise to power and prominence where otherwise they might not. But it's also those same circumstances that make their inability to see eye to eye all the more frustrating. In different circumstances, these arguments would not seem so dire, the stakes not so huge. As enjoyable as I find a show, like The West Wing, put a penny in the jar, the simple truth of the matter is that it's primarily a story about white people that have more privilege and power than most, trying to shape the nation in ways that will enfranchise others. But regardless of whether they fail or succeed, they will never generally be affected by failure. They may feel bad or angry about their efforts to create greater safety or equality for others not coming to fruition, but they will go on to have high-paying jobs, 
and will never have to worry about their rights being taken away. The cast has no characters that are LGBTQ. The handful of women they have are incredibly highly paid and respected, one of them rising to the rank of chief of staff during the length of the show. And the few black characters present are either among the few that have risen to the halls of power the hard way, or like Charlie Young, who got an extremely lucky break. Because he got connected to the right people, he will always be better off than those that remain in the situation he came from. And all of this comes only after a century of progress that has ground many others down in favor of those with means, which are primarily white, heterosexual, cisgender men, with women barely able to a slightly better deal during that time as well. Even with all that, we still have stories like women subject to lower pay and abhorrent work culture at corporate locations like Activision Blizzard, a story that came out... Ah, uh, oh yes, two days ago, after a multi-year investigation. The Arlingtons, meanwhile, are barely past the Civil War that was meant to provide black people with freedom and enfranchisement. Thomas lived in a world where his mother was hobbled and blinded, where he witnessed cruelties uncountable heaped upon others that shared his skin tone. It's hardly shocking that he would want to take this moment to ensure sweeping changes that would make sure this would never happen again. He understands how fragile all of this is, and that not pushing for change could see everything that they've worked for overturned. And it's hard to disagree with that, because guess what? We've now lived that. We've seen it in our lifetime how easy it is to destroy things that took years and decades to build. Therefore, in the here and now, Thomas understands that if he doesn't try to reform the systems that ensured the disenfranchisement of all non-white people, systems that are currently at their weakest due to the Wendigo, that someone else might come along and easily overturn small amounts of progress and black America at large not to mention any other minority groups, and they will potentially go right back to being ground underfoot. We see this clearly and can sympathize with his intransigence on certain matters. Any flaw in their actions is a flaw that others can use to tear it down. But being justified and right on some matters is not the same as being right on all matters. Even Sarah can only carefully suggest that he reconsider his position. And that is from someone he considers his equal. Never mind, someone he sees first and foremost as his child. But for now, we will set aside this topic. As I can assure you, it will come up again. The thing that I initially wanted to comment on in relation to what you were saying about Harry uh, is that because of her neurodiversity because of the way she interacts with the world you made reference uh in your own notes about harry being a problem solver who finds people difficult but understands how mechanisms work and how to yes. employ them in order to achieve a desired outcome this is why her creating 
the bulletproof jacket, the the stone spring uh, inside it, is hmm. a good form... word. Stone spring. <laughs> I hope we see it more in the future. <laughs> Comedy wink to camera. Um, but the point is, is that this is the issue that Thomas made clear to Harry during chapter nine. And now we see the outcome of that issue being responded to by Harry, where her love language, a term that I'd never heard of before until I started talking with Maureen, is creating something with her mind and in Mm. conjunction with Master Yagyu in order to bring respite to her father. And we mm. see that that moment between the two of them where he is just awed by this thing that she has created. And it's not just about her trying to use her intellect in order to protect her father, either mm. physically or emotionally. It's it's all about the way that expression of her love is something that Thomas completely understands in that moment. Mm. And there is a private, well, not really private because it's <laughs> they're in the weapons lab when that happens, but there is a clear, intimate moment between father and daughter because he understands the relevance of what just happened there. And it's it's not the only time that Harry expresses communication in that way. Mm. Uh, there's at least one other time where that happens in recent memory but in a book that we're not going to cover for a while where harry is responding to emotional turmoil by basically creating or fixing something because those are the things that she understands best and so therefore communicates through that all right that that noise is a combination of sweet appreciation of this moment and long desire to talk about that future story in the detail we are covering here in these chapters that will come all things good and come to those who wait yeah exactly there are plenty of good things happening here within these chapters within this book because as hard as Arlington is this is what helps you through it. This is always what helps you through it. Mm-hmm. That there's people, human connections there at the heart. Whatever else happens in New Century and whatever lies ahead in this book, that emotion and that thing that drives us forward, that persists. Yeah. So. At this point, we have finally caught up with Act One, and now <laughs> yeah. the story can truly begin. Now yeah, no, this was the warm-up, everybody. <laughs> Al- Alex commented at one point that it doesn't really work necessarily as being a three-act story, because the way it's laid out narratively, this is a very top-heavy Act One, so to speak. Mm. Um But it does make sense that, you know, these 12 chapters right here, this is the warm-up, as you say. This is introducing a lot of the key players that are going to be important going forward in the story. 
Mm. And now with the advent of, hey, now everybody else is aware of what happened in chapter one, we're going to continue into the developing plot uh, as opposed to setting all of the pieces out on the chessboard so that you know what some of the surrounding context and everything is going to be before everything really goes tits up, so to speak. Uh, you can always, like, I think that there is a lot of fun in sort of analyzing the, like, structure of stories and seeing where the sort of breaks and, like, segments best fit. But I think that different stories will have, like, more emphasis on the different parts. Sometimes they literally will change narrator or it'll be a different time period or things like that but sometimes i think in a story like this the point of it is that there is a constant momentum forward and there's always the work of the day there's always the busy work that is carrying you forward and this is a turning point to be sure but just because this is where like part one ends it doesn't mean that like what we've been seeing hasn't been like all meat and all like stuff that should concern us it's not like we've only been seeing the like easygoing parts of the book you know like mm. if that was the case what the fuck is Tremaine doing here like <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. you know like can you imagine like you know someone like Tremaine showing up in the Shire and like Fellowship of the Ring and it's just like yeah we're still in the first part of this everything's easy breezy <laughs> but then ring rates. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, ring rates. It's, it's late in the recording session. I will. Uh, my points are less coherent, but I apologize for nothing. If nothing else, we we know our own brand because we crafted it this way. So it's really just us being ourselves. It is just as planned in that it was unplanned all along. Yes, exactly. Yes. Our, our brand is merely us being ourselves. And mm. honestly, any any stagecraft that's involved in any of this is really just me creating a heightened version of us being ourselves, the best version of us being ourselves. That's what I'm providing to you, the listener. Look, if I'm an actor and I'm holding up a mask in front of myself, it's basically just like my own face but with like maybe a slightly more sardonic grin i don't know mm. well so when next you hear us talk i mean depending on what order these things come out in and you know any other supplemental material that comes out we'll be talking about the next i think the next four chapters of arlington I have to review a little bit of like what, how the next few things play out, and so therefore how much meat there is going to be, and whether or not we need to slow down at any point and be like, okay, we're just going to cover mm-hmm. two chapters this time around. Because that, that has happened in the past, where we suddenly feel the need to discuss two chapters or even one chapter in greater detail because of the amount of stuff that happens mm. here but on the other hand you know sometimes it's just being like okay we're as i recall a lot of the time we we covered five entire chapters of tiger's eye uh in the way that we did and then it expanded to four 
episodes or more, <laughs> you know, maybe because of having to do more than I, reporting on it or technical issues. I think it is a tricky balance because on the one hand, you know, we ought to have a certain diligence in the way we approach these stories and these books and these chapters but at the same time what we always want to convey as like whatever notes we prepare beforehand what we always want to convey is the conversational element of this mm. that this is a conversation happening between the two of us and you know by extension with us with the audience and conversations have to flow and they have to sometimes in format should be the represent the same amount of talking matter but just in the flow of the conversation it doesn't shift that way that's just how it goes and you don't want to necessarily lose either that practiced approach or that sincerity of just the conversation mm. so the balancing of that is that dragon that element we always chase Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that element of conversation is part of the reason why we'll sometimes wander all over the map and mm. deviate from the uh <laughs> deviate from the outline, so to speak. But it works a lot of the time. If we have to feel like we have to revisit previously discussed issues because they have uh greater context now that we hadn't considered back when I wrote the outline and you contributed to it or anything like that. That's how we're going to go with that. And it may mean that it's messy at times, or that it may mean that sometimes we repeat ideas that we might have covered in the past. But, you know, for fuck's sake, this isn't a scripted show or anything like that. This is, well, okay. It's a little Look, bit more scripted. if it was, we would sound a lot better, trust me. Yeah, we well. Half of the rambles that I go on. It, it's a little bit scripted. Like, I think at one point I got into the fact that part of the whole experience of writing the outline is that we come up with really good ways of saying things in terms of the topics that we wanted to discuss and we'll want to read them verbatim as a result. And that can sometimes make the, the conversation feel like it has a little bit more of a clean edge to it, but there's just as much of Toby and I just riffing on whatever thought we have at the moment as mm. stuff that we've written down prior to that have had more of a polish to it. Mm. Like that. Well, at the risk of getting too navel-gazy, something mm -hmm. that I've found is that it's quite difficult to have a conversation that is entirely off the cuff. Because mm. if you're having a conversation about ideas that you have some level of familiarity in, then what you are doing, even if you're sort of positioning them in a new sequence or you're just putting a new polish on it but you are often presenting well-practiced ideas and thoughts that you have had in the past and you may like use them in as a sort of in chemistry with other thoughts or your conversational partners like take and what they're bringing to the situation but there will often be things that you have formulated ideas on before you had that particular conversation so i think that what we do with this is that balance between the well-practiced and articulated idea 
and the less sort of polished, rough around the edges ones that just pop up as, in the process of development. Yeah, but on top of that, I, I would point out that people already kind of know what it is, what we sound like we're talking with no preparation. That's what News of the Century is. Um, <laughs> but that's because we're... The work that we do on these episodes where it's retrospective and we're giving a bunch of chapters their own focused conversations and everything like that, that's a different animal from us just geeking out about mm -hmm. this new story that we read and that we love and that we're trying to just like, okay, I, I, I like this thing and I like that thing. And then we try to have a conversation about that. It may be far more unpolished, but it definitely has an energy to it that mm. is different, but still works for, I would hope, what mm. we try to accomplish here. Yeah. We, we bring out a lot of flavors and recipes from the Through the Window Kitchen. Oh God, now you make it sound like we're a friggin' test kitchen YouTube creation or something like that. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I suck in the kitchen, so God. Now, now I'm just thinking about the idea of making like 19th century recipes or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> what would the Through the Window cookbook look like? <laughs> oh dear, uh, 50%, yeah. 50% of it is well articulated and prepared steps, and then the rest of it is... <laughs> 20 ways to prepare Wendigo. Oh, God, no. no the, the point of the Wendigo is that they eat us. We don't want to eat them. Look, you know you know what it is? Like, our the Through the Window cookbook is just, like, to serve Wendigo. And <laughs> it's just like, it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. And that's what all those Wendigos that pass by my window are doing. Oh, dear. Well, I think that that brings us to the end. Like, I tried to bring us to the end a moment ago, and then we wandered away from the topic. So that, again, is just us being on brand. Mm. But in another week's time, as always, we'll get to see you on another trip through the wind door. Take care. Honestly, folks, this is my bad. I looked at the amount of recording that we had left and assumed that we had room for a fourth 45-minute episode plus outtakes. And that would be good enough for a week. I really needed to do a proper spot check before committing to this, because now it's going to feel a little undercooked. We're not quite at, this could have been an email territory, but this is definitely one of those times where I needed to do what I usually do and skip to the end to grab all potential outtakes first, so that I knew how much meat we were actually working with. I will add that we've got some amazing conversations on the way, based on the pre-gaming I've been doing, first with chapters 13 through 16, and after that, chapters 17 through 19. It's just that real life, as it often does, gets in the way. To close us out, outtakes notwithstanding, I'm going to do the thing that Alex hates the most, share a Phil Collins song. I'm teasing, of course, but as someone that has listened to more Phil in my lifetime than some artists, I know that he does, in fact, sing about things besides his many, many songs about love, failed relationships, and relationships in turmoil. 
In some ways, I might almost compare him to the character of Joshua Lyman in The West Wing, put a penny in the jar. He's a workaholic that doesn't know how to switch off, and his relationships have suffered as a result. But he does care very deeply about equality and rights, even with being a fabulously rich musical celebrity, and has devoted more than one song to such issues, including We Wait and We Wonder about the Irish Troubles, Another Day in Paradise about homelessness, and Both Sides of the Story, a song with an unfortunate title considering recent memes, but one that covers many societal inequalities in first world nations. This song I'm sharing today has lyrics that sound like it could apply to the U.S., but is actually specifically in reference to apartheid in South Africa, a different place with a long, bloody history of conflict between a white minority and a black majority they disenfranchised. It was originally titled, Oh Mr. Botha, What Can We Do?, a reference to the English music hall song, Oh Mr. Porter. So until next time, this is Phil Collins with Colors.
here I'm trying to do what I was basically trying to do with you during our early days, which is to make sure to stop and give you room to voice your opinion mm. before you got confident enough to be able to interject on whatever it is that I was Much saying. Much to your displeasure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was very unhappy with that. I'm, <laughs> I, I, me, the guy that worries that he rattles on too long. Well, okay, we both worry that we ramble on too long. That's a common thread between each of us. Yeah, we um, have a brand. Well, uh, I guess that means that I'm going to have to wind back up with me rereading it and everything like that. So the next time we record, I can be properly prepared with all of the fresh, reminding myself of all the stuff that you're going to be gushing about as you're high on caffeine. Yes. Greg, just do what the book says. Go back in time plus space. That's fine. <laughs> exactly. And being like, yes, I've listened to your show on X movie. It's just I've forgotten it and need to remind myself of the things that I already heard you talk about um, because it's been replaced by recipes of cuttlefish. I don't know. You know, it's just like <laughs> people have told me that I have a good memory. And while it can be true that there are things that I can remember after one experience just because they, they sunk home or whatever... They were influential enough that I remember it. Very often, part of the reason why I remember things is because it's either I've had repeated experience with something, like a podcast or a movie or a book or something like that, and I've taken it in enough times that certain moments just stick out in the memory. Or mm -hmm. alternately, this is a story that I've told to people before, and while stories can obviously have some sort of evolution as our memories get hazier or anything like that, typically these stories, these anecdotes that I either get from my own telling of events or from other people talking of these events, the actual framing of it gets sort of stuck in my brain to the point where I can recall on command these specific moments in my life or somebody else's life and relate it back to other people mm. but as an example i just want you to imagine like when the when the screen booted up and i first saw you it, it just so happened that you were taking a drink from your mug but you were turned in just such a way and and so that you were like you know in a position as your cup was up to the lips, that it would have been a perfect screenshot of been like, but that's none of my business. <laughs> that was exactly <laughs> the energy I was going for. Okay, fair enough. Back when I was working at Biogen, which is the um, pharmaceutical that company that the first outbreak of COVID happened here in Massachusetts. Biogen sounds like a firm <laughs> that exists in like a Resident Evil yes. like adjacent film or like property. Like that's where the thing that starts in prototype or it is like called like Wayland Utani. It doesn't help that uh well, first of all, I worked there on a managed service level. I was mm -hmm. one of the people making sure that all of their copiers and stuff were working properly. They have like six different buildings. And a lot of the offices are, like, built with, like, those glass walls and everything like that. So it's very Resident Evil in terms of, like, if you remember oh. the opening scene. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
and you know, every, everyone has badge access and everything like that. There, oh, oh, and worst of all, there, there's one building that is dedicated to being a lab, and you know that it's a lab because they have clean rooms over there, like okay. you know, the, the kind of thing that you'd like have to suit up for, like go through an airlock and everything like that. And when you're crossing between buildings, there is literally an area that constantly has an enormous amount of steam coming out of it. So you're like, oh, holy shit! That's where they—that's where they're making the T virus in there. <laughs> what like action scene is, or boss fight is about to break out in there? <laughs> well, that is the steam vent is like, I mean, outside, right next to the, um, the not the crosswalk, well, but like a, a piece of um, a piece of sidewalk connecting the buildings and everything. Well, Right, that's because that's the area that when you're escaping the facility and the inevitable final boss fight where you beat it by using a rocket launcher, that's where <laughs> it happens. Um, this isn't your first rodeo, I don't have to explain this to you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, got a, I've got a little surprise for you that you're very much going to enjoy. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, yes, 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 it's, it's a, little, uh, a little thing that I had commissioned. Commission, you know, you, say. you know exactly what it is, but yeah, but I'm gonna make you wait for it. I I have <laughs> no idea. I'm I don't know. <laughs> I'm in the dark here, listeners. He's I I know this is an outtake. I I know when these things happen. He thinks I don't, but I always know. <laughs> the secret to that taking those outtakes as well is that when there were more mistakes and I wanted to include the mistakes as being like funny moments and everything like that, you know, our, our version of gibbet and everything these days, it's more just like conversations that we had that were not specifically on topic or happened prior to the official recording and therefore don't flow neatly into our, quote-unquote, podcast recording, but those outtakes are still edited the same way to remove, like, the noise words or to clean things up and everything like that. So everything that, that happens that is on the podcast for people to listen to is a, is a cleaned-up reality, so to speak. Hmm. You know? I, hear what you're, I hear what you're saying, Greg. The reality is that we've just gotten so good at this, we don't make mistakes anymore at all. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> like we are absolutely flabless. I mean, flawless. Fuck. Edit that out. <laughs> no one must know. Do we have Bob's episode coming up? Because I think we do with his character. There's like a scene with uh, Bob Chipman uh, playing. I forget his character's oh, name. Oh yes, um, hmm. yes. You're thinking of Sean Riley. Uh, yeah, yes, Sean playing Riley. the teacher. He mm. his episode is coming up. I don't know if it's in the next four. So yeah, um, that one's going to be a philosophical like set of things because like that one is much more about just engaging with his like when he basically delivers a big picture episode in a, like New Century and it's glorious. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like let's engage with what he's talking about. I'm mm-hmm. really looking forward to that. So let's see here. So if we did cover the next four episodes, the next chapter would be the imperative, which is where they're having the big conversation about, okay, what are we doing next here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, pri- and sets up 
the fact that they now need to find a new vice president. Uh, the chap- alternative chap- the, he- the header to that chapter is just manticles. Who knew? Yeah, exactly. And then chapter 14, the- we finally get back to Annie, where she teams up with Carl. And- fuck, yes, fuck, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and we are massive Carl stands on this podcast, I'll tell you that for free. Exactly. And then we have her hunting the Manticore and another another meeting with Redacted by the O Five Council. Chapter fifteen is where we meet McPherson for the first time. It's also mm. where we meet fucking Van Tassel and Maurice Van Tassel. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that's three chapters. And then the one immediately after that might be Sean Riley yes. might be like, yes, perfect. Sean Riley might be my, and this is out of like just necessity, my favorite new century character with the least amount of like scene time or just direct like sort of airtime because obviously it's like Bob is very busy. So mm-hmm. getting him to record is like, you know, that was a catch. I think what they do well with that is, and we'll talk about this in that episode, is that you get so much of who Sean Riley is in that episode that even if Sean Riley is this sort of distant figure that you really want to succeed, you get enough of who he is in that short space of time that that just sells you on like his place in New Century as the one you hope makes it. Give me a chance. Here, Toby and I had a really great conversation that I can't share most of it with you because it involves a lot of spoilers, not only for the second half of Arlington, but also for stories beyond. But I will pick up here when we start comparing New Century to other stories. I think that in New Century, whenever something hurts, it is it has a certain amount of consideration behind it. Yeah. Also, your entire conversation a moment ago about the difference between New Century and Game of Thrones in terms of... There are many. (laughs) Well, yes, there are many, but specifically the way you highlighted that it can sometimes take a long time for the villains of Game of Thrones to receive their comeuppance. Yes. Yes. And, And one of the the primary aspects to New Century is that, and we even got into this a little bit where we were talking about Redacted, is that it doesn't have many running villains. A lot of the villains are addressed within the story that introduces them one way or another. Yeah, and like, there's characters who like, to a certain degree, I like I think they're really compelling and you sort of like a part of me wants to sort of to see a little bit more with that because it, they are constructed just as well as they are. But like a bigger part of you is just like, I am glad that the damage that they can do is like there's a consideration because the what the example I'm thinking of is redacted in Panther Soul and 
what Alex was talking about of what he and Sharon were putting together. Sharon playing that character and is specifically going for a Yorkshire accent for that. <laughs> I am very excited for that. I think that is going to be there will be a presence there and I uh -huh. think it's going to be I am so excited to hear that. It's going to hurt. It will hurt a lot. I am so excited for that. That was one of those like little development diary entries that I was like <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> And this last part here is purely for Sharon's enjoyment because it involves the intersection of the characters that Alex writes and how Sharon inhabits them that we enjoy or alternately find a little bit difficult to listen to. The thing that I'm reflecting on here in terms of the progression of the kind of characters that Sharon plays mm -hmm. is that we've moved from... Sharon playing someone fun and humorous, but also untrustworthy and dangerous, to someone that is more antagonistic and mm. is fun to a degree, but her the quality of her desires actually turn us off in ways mm. that we kind of like a little bit more in terms of redacted. Uh, yes. And now she's come fully around is going and is going to be voicing redacted. Right. But just yeah. like now she's voicing someone with a completely different quality to them. I was just going to say it's going to be it's already difficult hearing redacted voiced by Sharon. It's going to be mm. even more difficult to hear Sharon voicing redacted. Yes. And I'll tell you what I am like fascinated by and like just really excited about is that redacted is that sort of dark uncertainty but like genuinely someone you you enjoy being around mm -hmm. uh it's, it's and... a little bit like um what's his name michael rooker's character yondu mm. yeah yeah, it... yeah yes yes and redacted is just like such a problem <laughs> but understatement but like here's the thing compared to those two Redacted is mirthless. Mm. Like, even Redacted has this sort of like, darling, just sort of uses humor to normalize and just integrate her take on things as the thing that we can all share a joke about because that's just the way that we all agree things are, don't you know? Mm. And Redacted is just this person who feels mirthless by comparison and i am just like there's something about uh the way that redacted is written from that first chapter with them mm -hmm. that sort of sets up everything about like why they are that way and what their ambitions are and their presence in the rest of the book that feels like just uh panther soul excites me <laughs> and in multiple ways, which I shan't get into here. That's for when the podcasts are off, darling. Yeah, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer for it now. because of the... I am quite happy to wait in anticipation. <laughs> <sighs> uh, 
yes. Well, I mean, we have to wait. Um, but it's it's all for it's all for a better purpose. Well, am I going to complain that like, ugh, I'm here with like waiting for Pantasol, and all I've got right now is Stone Spring Maidens, my favorite book in the. <laughs> uh, anyway, I shall end on good and exciting notes. <laughs> <laughs>